How do we talk about death? Not so well, generally, in this country, but slowly we are learning that talking about it at all is better than not. And three books I read recently spoke about death and grieving with such honesty and in ways that connected each to the other that I felt compelled to bring the three authors together. So settle down for an hour or so of brilliant conversation between myself and Chloe Hooper, author of Bedtime Story, Michael Rosen, author of Getting Better, and Carrie Ad Lloyd, creator of Griefcast and author of You Are Not Alone. Chloe, Carriad and Michael, thank you so much for joining me with this episode of the podcast. I could very easily, of course, have spoken to each of you individually for a good hour or so about your books. But when reading these books, they so clearly crossed over in many ways that I thought it would be much better to bring the three of you together in conversation. Um, And I'm hoping it will take us into all sorts of interesting areas. I'm going to begin with you, Chloe, because I guess if these three books do talk about life and death and grief and moving on from that um yours i suppose starts with this anticipation of grief in that you and your partner don received this terrible news about his health and that sent you into a sort of i guess a quest to find the right way to tell your young sons about what was happening And therefore, it was sort of almost an anticipation of grief, not quite knowing what was going to happen. Could you tell us a little bit about how it felt sort of, I suppose, immediately on hearing that news and and why it was that you turned to books to to hopefully find the answer? Well, uh, our sons were uh, six and three when we received the news that Don had a very rare form of leukemia and the prognosis wasn't good. Um, and of, of course, you know, amongst all of the, the questions, um, that emerged, one of the foremost was how do we, how do we talk to the children about this? And for a long time, we didn't want to tell them anything. Um, we had this, I guess, a kind of old fashioned notion that, um, the moment we let this, uh, monstrous news into the house, uh, that this kind of um, uh, you know c- curtain would come down on their on their childhood, and so actually I think one thing I learnt was by um, you know having the the sotto voce conversations and um, um, kind of pre- trying to pretend there was nothing wrong. Actually, this sort of the 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 news grew into this secret that actually took a lot of the oxygen up and, and changed the atmosphere in the house. And because uh, Don, my, my partner and I are both writers, uh, it occurred to me, I think also when you hear that news, you think about inheritance. So actually um, what, we, what we could give them and one way to perhaps um, make this, you know, devastating news um, easier to cope with, I, I thought, was to find the right story. And the bedtime story is a uh, a huge routine in our in our household. And um, I went, I, I suppose, searching through um, children's literature for for different ways that we've um, handled this news. Um, and um, I was sort of looking through the the Brothers Grimm to 
um, Michael Rosen to try to find the, the right story to, to tell my children. We're going to discover sort of, I suppose, how that journey went for you and the, the, the things you discovered and the frustrations that came in that search as well. Um, but what I thought would be interesting is that, of course, that that news that you received means that Don would have been going through what we what we would term, I suppose, the true five stages of grief. So, Cariad, you talk about this in your book, which is that lots of people have an awareness of this idea of the stages of grief. Mm. And that, as you point out in your book, that is not supposed to apply to people who are going through a loss. It's yes. supposed to apply to people who are dealing with the idea that their life is coming to an end. So this idea of anger, fear, but I can't even remember them now, but do you know what I mean? people have that sort of vague awareness of the bargaining yes. acceptance. Yeah, yeah. But as you say in your book, you were thinking, why am I not feeling these things? Why doesn't it work? You definitely said you felt the anger, um, but that because you were dealing with the loss of your father, that this idea that grief was something that you worked through, like it was a game, was was a really unhelpful thing. Would you tell us a little bit more about that from your perspective? Yeah, so my um, dad died when I was 15 of pancreatic cancer, and he was um, diagnosed in the February of 1998 and dead by the April. So it's very quick very sudden, very like, um, I love the way Chloe was talking about it there, that kind of this thing that comes in and just, uh, unfortunately for us, like just turned everything upside down. Mm. And yeah, I was vaguely aware of the five stages of grief theory, as lots of people are, I kind of knew like, oh yeah, you're supposed to go through things, aren't you? And at the end is acceptance, at the end is the end, you've done it, woohoo. Um, and I kept thinking, well, when am I going to do that? Because <laughs> I was only in anger, I was just furious, which is quite a common reaction for um young grievers I was just so rageful because I didn't have any vocabulary to put into words what had happened to me because I was too young I just had all the feelings without any way of going oh I'm feeling very frustrated that this happened I had no control over it mm. um and so it wasn't till years later when I started my podcast the grief cast that I started really investigating the five stages and it comes from a book called on death and dying by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and was written in 1969. And for me, that's the most important piece of information you need in that, you know, we wouldn't really take much women's rights from 1969 or like nutritional advice from 1969. <laughs> like we'd all be like, oh, this is pretty old stuff. Like maybe we need to revise it, but we continue to take this, this grief theory. And what actually the theory she posited, Kubler-Ross, um, she was working in hospitals at the time, specifically with people dying of terminal illnesses. And she developed this theory based on the fact that they weren't being told they were dying. So they were going into hospital, they would get treatment and they would honestly believe, oh, this is going to make me better because they thought it, and the doctors thought oh, it's too upsetting to tell people they're dying. So we won't tell mm. them. And they would sometimes not, you know, not tell family members. It was all very, you know, cloaked and hidden and they would just be called a malignancy. And it was just not a great way <laughs> to communicate. So Kubler-Ross said, look, if you tell someone they're dying, she so they'll go through five distinct stages and I will get them in the wrong order as well but it's like um you know depression anger bargaining no denial anger bargaining depression acceptance and then they would accept I am gonna die and somewhere along the road of time of culture this became applied to people who were grieving hmm. it was never ever designed for that it was designed for people who were dying and the reason I think that's really interesting is if you are dying you're approaching in terms of narrative and story you're approaching the full stop of your life so you can mm. reach an end emotion of acceptance because and you know, obviously you might not but 
it's possible because something's about to stop. But with grieving, the whole point of grieving is that you're living. <laughs> you're living with this pain and this sadness that someone has died. So it, it just doesn't work for grieving. And she herself, Kubler Ross said years later, you know, it, it's been misinterpreted. It doesn't really, it's not really what I meant. You know, she also wrote that book in six weeks. She, you know, published this study. It was so successful. She wrote a book on it. It became this huge, huge bestseller. So I think it's it's so important as ever to get the historical context of things that you're then trying mm. to apply to help yourself, which mm. I think must come back to what Chloe was saying about, you know, stories and how you, you know, we read these things and you think, hang on a minute, who was writing this and when were they writing it? And like, what, what can I actually take from that now? So yeah, I'm a sort of militant five stage, not denier because it does, you know, for some people it works, but I just think it's very unhelpful and you need to understand the context of it before you apply it to your grief. Yeah. As you say, it's sort of it's being applied in the, in the wrong circumstance. Uh, of course, Chloe, f- for Don, it, it would have been more, I suppose, appropriate for him and what he was going through. Uh, in your book, um, you are very honest, I suppose, about the impact that this has on your family and you're detailing what you're doing in terms of trying to find the right story. Was that something that you were very much doing with Don? Um <laughs> He's obviously he's there in the book, but it feels like obviously he's obviously going through a slightly different process to to, to you. Were you very much trying to remain unified? He's going through chemotherapy, so that yeah. is a, um, a, a different process. And I, I suppose I thought I'll handle I'll handle the literary, um, you know, um, aspect. Well, he he had the sort of um, medicinal one. Um, I think, well, I guess technically the, the term we'd be given, and, and Carrie, you know more about this in a way, is anticipatory grief. Yes, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, um, but I was, I actually, I had a kind of a swattish idea that I was going to, um, you know, I started looking up these sort of um, quite dense historical studies of death in children's literature and I would be kind of like hiding away in my office, reading, um, you know, even through the kind of footnotes, thinking there would be some, um, you know, folk tale, um, you know, that had been forgotten from <laughs> 1794. And in this, I would immediately find the right story to tell the children and everything would be all right. Um, but, you know, the, the process was... Um, you know, it was revealing in other ways, partly about um, my own phobias, um, but also, um, you know, I started actually then looking at some uh, children's authors and 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 their childhoods, and I and I saw that the Brothers Grimm, Hans Christian Andersen, um, L. M. Montgomery, C. S. Lewis. Dahl, Tolkien, uh, Francis Hodgson Burnett—they they had all suffered a bereavement as, as as a child, and it did make me wonder, you know, is is grief an element of enchantment? And um, perhaps storytelling, I, I guess, you know, maybe that is the purpose. You know, how we look at at life's great mystery and um i know tolkien talked about about fairy stories being um you know a representation of the oldest and deepest desire of the great escape the the great escape from death and and maybe that is in a in a part is is what uh, we tell stories for it is extraordinary that that list of authors that you've just run through 
it's, it's I mean, that, that is sort of like a who's who of the, the most amazing children's writers, particularly children in a sort of what we might term almost fantastical writing, some of the great fairy tales and uh, fantasy stories and uh, memorable characters. It, it does seem almost extraordinary to me that they all suffered bereavement in their childhoods. And it and so that it seems completely natural to draw that conclusion that there must have been something about that 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 set them on that creative journey. We will definitely talk about what how writing can be a way of not dealing with or coping with, but sort of a response to grief. Um, I want to bring in Michael because, of course, one of the books that you mention in your book, Chloe, is Michael's book, Sad Book, um, which was written... I love, that. I love that book so much. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, Michael, uh, Sad Book was obviously written in, in response to the death of your son, Eddie, um, and you've spoken very much... You, you, you mentioned the book in, in your new book, Getting Better, I just say with with getting better the new book you talk about so many different kinds of grief which is it seems extraordinary to me there's sort of this ancestral grief within your family there is the familial grief that you went through with Eddie some very personal grief for yourself because of your own health and the things that you've been through uh, particularly recently and they they're all really interesting different types of grief um but I think maybe if we if we could just touch on Eddie briefly um with sad book you talk about how sitting down to write that was a huge relief for you and a, and a step forward in, in, in dealing with that grief could you tell us a little bit more about that yes I mean writing is a is a strange activity because you know we can all talk we're talking now and when you write everything slows down it, it that sounds quite trivial you know obviously we, we can think of some very highfalutin things to say about writing but actually one of them that sounds quite, as I say, quite trivial is that you just take your time and you scribble things out and you rewrite and then it's there in front of you in a way that conversation isn't, even if when you look at it back on video or, or play it back from recordings. And there's a way in which that process of being slow and then looking back at it and it being accessible to pull off a shelf or um, it's just there on a car journey or at an airport and so on, um, it it has this strange um, way of being like a mirror, uh, or because it's what you've written about yourself. You've extracted it from yourself slowly, um, and then look at it, and then if, to go back on that extraction process of taking it out of yourself. Um, you can't escape from the fact that writing does impose some kind of order. I'm not saying it's the only order or the right order, but it is an order, mm. and one of the features of of all these big emotions we're talking about now, but obviously grief in particular, is there's a kind of disorder about it. It's, it you could think of all sorts of words, miasma or chaos or swirling, whirling or whatever words you want to use, that it, it seems very chaotic. And then when you put it on a page, because of the logic of the written language of laying things down in lines, one word after another, even the actual act of finding a word to describe something is a process of putting things into order. And that has a very, um, you know, there is a sort of a pleasing aspect to that. You can't get away from it. If you feel that you've expressed the thing that you were feeling, then there's a way in which it feels like a relief. I think I've given some analogies like, you know, letting air out of a, a very tight balloon or uh, there's all sorts of other analogies we might think of. But 
um, in my mind, it's always been a very relieving thing to do to be able to get that stuff onto paper. And so with Sad Book, I mean, I, I didn't intend to write about Eddie dying at all. As I've said in the book, it, it came about because a child asked me the question at a festival, a literary festival, and just said, oh, what's happened to Eddie? And I just said in front of 400 people, well, he's died because uh, they knew Eddie from my book, Let's Get Out of Here, where there's mm. some funny poems about him. And then we moved on. I mean, it was extraordinary. You know, what's your favourite football team? And um, I just thought there was something so normal about that. that. Um, but in my mind, there was nothing normal about Eddie dying. Obviously, it was just this great big horrific stuff. But then I, it was just suddenly normalised because I'd said to a child, he died. So I thought I, I needed to do that in the medium I'm familiar with, which is putting some words on a page. Mm. You, in in Getting Better, you, you refer to it as unfolding. So that ability, as you say, to kind of get words on a page. And you say that often other people who aren't writers per se are sometimes scared or put off the idea of doing that themselves because it's not the way in which they're used to sort of communicating I suppose but but you put great store in it as a as a way of as you say ordering things and getting them on paper do you think people should be sort of I suppose less scared of of putting pen to paper and, and just seeing what comes out it's not a test after all mm, indeed no the, the big stick that hangs over us uh, any of us who've been through education which is 99% of us is that you've got to write something that's syntactically correct it may not have been put that way, but they were called proper sentences. Mm. You know, you had to have capital letters and full stops. You know, to have a finite verb. And then these days, the children are asked to have an expanded noun phrase and a coordinating conjunction. And don't forget the comma after the front-end adverbial. All these are terrors. They're, all these are ways of actually preventing children from writing. I mean, you may end up with a certain percentage of the children with something quotes correct unquote in front of them but none of that will actually help you write about stuff that matters to you so there are other ways to do that and one of the ways is to free yourself from the tyranny of the sentence you don't actually have to write in sentences it's okay I mean I'm not against sentences but you don't have to <laughs> and one of the things that liberated us from the sentence was James Joyce Virginia Woolf and the imagist poetry they all liberated us from having to bother with that that we can write about feelings so quite often when we're musing about these horrors and terrors that have happened to us little phrases occur or even single words so I say don't be frightened of that don't feel you've got to somehow or other wrap that in the perfect syntax of a sentence just put it down like the example I give is doctors coming to my bedside after I came out of the coma saying you were very poorly and I kept thinking, oh, what, is, what is this very poorly? What do they mean? Do they mean that I died or I nearly died or I just had a temperature? <laughs> so this very poorly thing was reverberating in my head. So in order to write about that, I just put down on the page very poorly. Then I thought, why have I put that down on the page? Because that's what the doctors keep saying. So that was the next line. And the idea that you can write in lines as opposed to paragraphs, again, can be. It's just one way just as musicians and dancers and painters find ways to liberate themselves from some of the tyrannies of composition and form and so on, is that you can start from these phrases and then my, my image is of unfolding, as if you're unfolding some clothes or a sheet or something like that, and just let it come. And then afterwards, if you want to, you know, make syntax out of it or, I don't know, sew it onto a, um, 
uh, a sampler, you know, in the way that people did in the 18th century. It's fine. But just to get yourself going, mm. that freedom, I find, incredibly helpful. It's so interesting that it was the, the question of a child that sort of unlocked that ability. And, and Chloe, your own children in your book are constantly saying things or asking questions which force you to confront what's going on. Did did that put you, I suppose, under even more pressure to to find the right way of talking to them about what you needed to talk to them about? Well, I mean, I think one of the the big questions kids have is is around, um, you know, what happens next and uh, an afterlife and and these these things which often adults aren't even, you know, unless um, you come from a religious background and you're still practicing yourself um you know lots of adults don't really know what what they think and one of the most useful bits of advice that I read actually was asking kids well what do you think happens and so that actually is a way for adults to kind of steady themselves um but that it's you know before they do answer the question and to find it's another way also of finding out exactly what children you know believe um about death or illness or what happens um, afterwards. And it's also all right for adults to say, well, I don't know um, because really none of us do know. So, um, but it's interesting to hear Michael talk about unfolding, which I, I guess it's, you know, it is a way, writing is a way of controlling um, sometimes very painful experiences and, and time does slow down, but also you get to, um, you know, burnish a sentence or, um, you know, stop or start and, um, and change things slightly and, and dwell in moments. Or, and it's a little bit like reading, actually, where you get to kind of, you know, if it's a scary part, you can reread it or turn the page quickly. Um, and I suppose also in, in reading, it's a way which we actually can kind of, um, we can commune with the dead because you can pick up a book by um, some fantastic writers and you, you sort of pick up their um, syntax and humour and radiance or wisdom and, um, you know, that is, in, that is one way where, where, where there is an afterlife. Um. Carrie, we, we've been talking a bit there about how writing can be a really useful way of confronting and, and dealing with grief and the emotions that it throws up. But it's clear from reading your book, You Are Not Alone, that one of the first things that helped you was talking, um, that that sort of that that anger that you'd been holding on to for a long time. It wasn't until you had a chance to actually talk to somebody about it that you were I suppose made some progress and this is before Griefcast I mean I mean yeah, sort of yeah. you know just sort of talking tell me a little bit about why it was such a relief to be able to just talk honestly about what you were going through. <laughs> well yeah it's, it's really interesting um I'm a talker uh, that's <laughs> that's what how I communicate I'm not I'm someone who is a talker who's had to sit down and change that way of communicating into writing and I'm I find it really hard to sit still I have a lot of ADHD in my family, basically. <laughs> and um, so I think it's really interesting what Michael's saying about the unfolding, because that's something that I was terrified of for so long. And I also have a background in improvisation. And the reason I have a background in improvisation is it's 
you can talk and no one can pin down your sentences and go, what did you just say? What What did you mean by that? That's not a very funny thing to say. You can just throw it out there. And if it works, it, it, it works. If it doesn't, I'm just making it up. And it's like a really safe way of communicating for people who find writing hard. And mm. you often, often find improvisation full of frustrated writers and comedians and actors who are too afraid to go to the page and commit to it. And for a long time, I... Like I didn't, I, I wrote one diary entry when I was a teenager when my dad was sick. I won because I was literally too afraid because in the moment I wrote it down and again, I can really understand, like, understand Chloe talking about kids and stuff. For me, the moment it was on pen to paper, it was real. My dad was dying. My dad was dead. So mm. I just couldn't even write, make that pen go on that page because it was too, that leap was too final. And so, yeah, I'm someone who has always leaned towards talking found that an easier way to express myself I have no problem <laughs> talking about stuff my family are quite big talkers and um yeah I found it just almost like you the description of writing that's what I do with talking it's like you have a box in your head of mess <laughs> and then I kind of get it out by talking and I pull it all out in these different threads but I'm able to kind of hold all those talking threads as as much as someone might do on a page and I've had to really genuinely learn in writing this book to put those threads that I hold in my brain when talking, put them down onto paper. And when I did that, as Michael was talking about, I was like, oh, now I have to listen to myself because I've written it down. <laughs> oh, like that's how I felt or that, you know. And um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, you know, I think in terms of surviving grief, I think talking is a really great first step because mm. everything else can seem too much for people. And I don't necessarily mean talking therapies, like even just having a cup of tea with someone and saying, today's a bad day, today's a really bad day. Mm. Just saying that over a cup of tea can be sometimes all you need to make the grief almost stop being this cloud above you and, and become like part of your body and for you to be like, oh, it's here. I, I can't run away from it. I've got to look at this today. Um, as Michael also says, you can't, you can't go around it. You've got to go through it. And I think that just to remind people that it doesn't have to be grand talking, I guess in the way that Michael's saying, it doesn't have to be grand writing. You know, you don't have to mm. Tolstoy it <laughs> about what your grief is. And equally with talking, you don't have to like write this sermon that's going to change the world, but to just say to someone, today's a bad day. And I, and this is why I think is, so important I think we underestimate those of us who like communicating we underestimate how hard that is for some people who really really are locked locked in that grief and can't even even say today's a bad day uh, or waiting for someone to ask them as well so mm. yeah I feel like talking is that first step on the ladder of kind of getting out of the absolute pit of grief obviously you carry it with you but to kind of see the first chink of light in that tunnel of like oh maybe it won't be like this forever definitely it's what talking what worked for me yeah um michael i mentioned earlier about the sort of some of the ancestral grief that you you mentioned in your book and i suppose what i mean by that is in many ways the things that your mother didn't want to talk about if we're talking about talking she didn't want to talk about the family members who'd been lost for example during world war ii and in fact that you and your brother discovered that you had had a brother who had died in infancy that had never been mentioned until you'd found a photograph one day. Um, 
let's talk a little bit, I suppose, about about not talking about things, <laughs> about about how your mum didn't want to confront that. Um, why why I suppose do you think she just didn't want to talk about it, and um, what impact do you think that had on your dad and I suppose you and your brother? Um, I've deduced a philosophy because she was so silent about it. Um, I can't really, um, I don't have her words to explain what it was that she was doing. Mm. But as you've just summarised, she lost a a child between me and my brother, never, ever spoke about it, never, ever referred to it, didn't ever refer to the fact that me and my brother discovered a photograph of her with the baby sitting on her knee. She never referred to that. There were no photographs, no memorials of any kind whatsoever. <clears throat> and she died when she was 56 and we never, ever had a conversation about it. And also, on top of that, if my dad alluded to the fact that um, uncles had disappeared in the Holocaust, if he saw, if he appeared to be going off on one, as she might have put it, or seen him <laughs> sort of talking about it, she would get quite cross and say, it's all past. Why are you going on about these things? There's nothing you can do about it. She would get crossed by a, a sort of expression on his face. Um, I mean, I can sort of see him looking a little bit kind of... It, it wasn't exactly grief. It was more a sort of mixture between uh, upset and sulky. And um, he had a sort of way of dropping his cheeks and she would be irritated by it and and announce it. And so there was a sense that this was a forbidden territory. There was what we'd now call a firewall around it. Mm. And... Um, I mean, it's quite extraordinary in retrospect that this child completely disappeared. Um, And I guess the philosophy that I've deduced from it is my mother thought, you get on, Mm. you you proceed, you get on. She had a version of the doing cure as opposed to the talking one, which I'm affected by as well. I mean, I I, quite a firm believer in it in a way that, you know, if you if there are things you like doing, well, then do them. Um, and that is actually in its own way quite relieving. But she clearly felt that, um, that you just get on with the next thing. I, I was the next thing in one respect because I'm the child who came after. So they got on and made a baby, and that's me. But then, you know, she studied, uh, she, you know, in 1948. So the baby died in 44. I'm born in 46. By 1948, she's doing what was called emo- emergency training to become a teacher. She had left school at 16. Um, and she was immersed in, um, you know, that form of nurture that is education with young children. And she was immersed in that for the rest of her life. So uh, that's how I can deduce that was her outlook on life. Mm. Um, but, you know, what suffering she went through, I have literally no idea. I mean, all I have is apparently a friend saying, I mean, it sounds so bitter, and it doesn't really sound like my mother at all, that on one occasion my dad, I think, was crying over the fact the cat had died, and my mum saying to him, I don't know whether I put this in the book or not, actually, saying, you care more about the cat than you do about the baby. I don't think mm. I put that in the book, did I? No, you didn't, know. No, it's kind of a bit horrific. Anyway, there was this was a friend who reported it to me on my 50th birthday party, you'd be pleased to know, things people say. Anyway, <laughs> and... Um, I don't even know whether it's true, so that maybe that's why I didn't put it in the book. But it's what somebody said, that my mother snapped at my dad and said, you care more about the cat than the baby. But then I have no evidence that she cared about the baby. Well, of course she did. Yeah. But, I mean, I have no, I'm doing gestures with my fingers, no tangible 
sense of what her grief was. I mean, literally zero. I mean, it's very, very strange. Michael, it seems, though, that it wouldn't that have been quite typical of her generation? She's 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 grown up in the shadow also of the Great Great War where, you know, at the end of that, nobody really, you know, so many millions died and people just talked about the fallen and, and we, we didn't even sort of say death. It was, you know, people had gone on a great sleep or, you know, and actually culturally it's a it's a huge shift that we're even sort of sitting around in a anglo culture talking about about this because it's been um you know it was kind of like stiff upper lip for for such a long time where you know you didn't really discuss this stuff yes the only thing is they weren't stiff upper lip and and though they they were british my dad was actually born in the states they did see themselves very part, much part of a jewish culture which um, has never shied away from singing very sad songs about stuff and then off the back of a sad song saying, you know, we lost this, we lost that. Uh, I don't mean that in any trivial way, but that's very much embedded in it, so in the, in the culture. So, I mean, and my mother was never afraid of talking emotionally about uh, poems and stories and other relatives and that sort of thing. It's just that there was this firewall around this child. I mean, I... Mm. I've got nowhere near explaining it or even really describing it today. It's just this blank. And occasionally my brother and I, when we we chat, we kind of go, what, what was that about? And then we look at each other and go, I don't know. <laughs> and that's about as near as we get to it. I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're women. Maybe you've got a stronger <laughs> sense of it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I know I'm being in a way sexist about it here, but I mean, it's just that, you know, I all sorts of other women I know have lost people. They've, they've got, been not in any way hesitant about, and, and women of her age, you know, I mean, I know she would be 103 now, but, um, you know, I've had no problem about talking about the terrible things that happened. But I think my mother was, she, she used to say as a sort of jokey, ironic thing, because she was quoting the old Puritans from the 16th century, she used to look up in the, in the air and go, aha, let self-sacrifice be its own reward. Now, it was a joke. <laughs> it was a joke of my mum because she loved quoting for people that she didn't really agree with. But there's like, in the irony, it is in actual fact what she thought. Hmm. She was being ironic. She was quoting a culture that she didn't belong to. She had seen it on a sampler, had a giggle about it. And then a little bit of her, I, she actually thought that. I, th I know she thought that. So there's a little chink in my mother's philosophy that, though it isn't how she would have expressed it because she was putting it in big, ironic, scary quote marks, there's a little bit of us actually thought that. What's clear from reading all three of your books is that there are almost as many different forms of grief as there are people. And Carrie, out through your podcast, speaking to the many griefsters uh, that you've spoken to, it's so clear that, that everyone has a different response to the grief that they encounter. Um, and you've spoken about so many of them in that podcast but even you have been surprised sometimes by the situations that people have been in and not and not known what to say yourself um but it is important you have found to always just keep talking about it and to allow those people to express you know what it what it has meant to them however taboo that may be yeah I mean I definitely it wasn't until I started the grief cast that I definitely had even though I was cool talking about death <laughs> I had an idea that there was like a way to do it and like certain order of it and like certain things weren't sad 
you know, I was pretty much of the opinion that like, because my dad had died, if someone was upset about grandparent, I was like, okay, like it's not your parent. And I had that hierarchy in my head and no one likes to admit it, but we all have it in our head and, and we call it, I've only learned to lose that having actually listened to people. So because I've had these conversations and they've said, yeah, with my grandparent, here's my pain. And I thought, oh, well, they are in pain. What, who am I to say they, they shouldn't be? There is no grief hierarchy. Although, and grief psychologists agree with this. So they do say child loss is the hierarchy. That is the thing that because it goes against the order of things. So mm. although we say quite flippantly, there's no hierarchy. Grief is grief. Child loss is considered to be a very, very obviously hideously, hideously painful thing to have happened to you. But I think what I call it in the book and in um, on the show is this grief maths that we like to do. So we like to kind of work out how sad do I think someone should be so then I know what my reaction should be. So we kind of say things like, oh, oh, you know, so who was it who died? Oh, my grandparent. Oh, how old were they? 88. Oh, 88. No, oh, okay. <laughs> that's, not, that's not bad. Uh, were you close to them? No, not really. Oh, no, okay. Well, so in my, in my head, I've decided you're probably, what, two weeks sad? Two, maybe three? Four if you're pushing it. You know, and we do this with pregnancy loss as well for people. You know, we're like, oh, how many weeks pregnant was she if she lost the baby? Oh, two weeks. Oh, two weeks. Oh, yeah. oh, how young is she? Well, she's only 25. Oh, well, they got loads, you know, they got loads of time. They've got a kid already. Like we love because what we're trying to do, which makes sense, is we don't like feeling uncertain of, of what our reaction should be. Mm. So we like to kind of, we're trying to say, well, I need to know how sad I think you are. So I need to know what I should do. So I need to compose my face. So if you can tell me two plus two equals this times five, I'm really bad at math. Um, then I can <laughs> compose my face and I can think, oh, that's how sad they are. This is my appropriate reaction. And what I've learned through the grief cast, and I think it comes back to what Michael was saying, is like, there's no appropriate reaction. There's no, you know, you never know how someone's going to react. You know, I've spoken to women that have lost pregnancies and they're absolutely fine you know they say it was one of those things it wasn't that upsetting and I got pregnant again and I spoke to people who are devastated by a loss of uh, two weeks it and again I think that you know what Michael was saying about you know your mom it's like you can't grief is completely personal unique thing and it's it's entirely about you and the relationship between that person who's gone and a great example of that is like siblings grieve differently you know we have the same parents me and my brother have dealt with this very differently he doesn't have a podcast about it he's not talking about it (laughs) like he's like are you still you're still talking about it okay right he's very supportive but he's like I don't feel the need to talk about this every day something that happened it was sad and we've moved on and so when you understand that like it's not about what's the right reaction or it's not about what's the appropriate or how long you knew them or any any of that stuff and it's funny you said that about your mum actually Michael because it's very common for people to have a strong reaction to a pet later is a way of diffusing the grief because they cannot face the really awful grief. So I've had so many people say to me, oh, my, you know, my next door neighbor's grandparent just died and I'm in floods of tears or the dog just died and I, I can't get up off the floor. But two weeks ago, my, you know, my dad died and I didn't have a reaction. So it's, it's mm. we, you know, you, grief is so personal, and so unique, and it's about your relationship with the person who's gone. And only you know what that means. And only you can define that. And only you can have the answers for what's, what's, right for you to help deal with that and whether that's writing it down or talking about it or not talking about it and you know I I learned the hard way I learned the very hard way of doing a podcast about grief every week and getting it wrong and and seeing someone's face and thinking oh my god I thought I was like I thought I had this down because like I joined the club so early I should be able to navigate this 
And it wasn't until I really, yeah, stopped trying to find the right reaction for people or the correct thing, but just heard them and just said, that sounds really awful. And they would say, yeah, it is. <laughs> I think, yeah, tell me about it. Tell me about what happened. Because I think mm. we're just so desperate to be correct and and to be helpful and to be useful. And actually, people don't need you to do those things. People don't need you to tell them what you think their grief should be or whether you think like, you know, they were old or they were if people. My dad was 44 when he died and he was very, very active. You know, he was training for an Ironman. <laughs> people said all the time, oh, it was good. It was quick. Oh, he would have hated to have been ill. He was so active and hated. And I remember thinking, yeah, probably true. I would have liked it to be longer. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I, if you asked me in this, I would have liked more time. So it's like, just to be aware of like, there isn't, there isn't a sentence that's going to make this okay. Death isn't okay. It's a terrible thing that, that we are born into this life to face. And it's not okay that it happens. It's painful. So just allow people to be upset about it. Hmm. There's um, in your book, Cara, there's these sort of almost alternating chapters called waves yes. where you share these sort of personal memories, I guess. Um, and it also seems a very accurate description to me of what grief is like. As we've said earlier, it's not a game that's completed and then you're over it. But throughout your life, these things will hit you like a wave where you suddenly have that remembrance again of, of what it felt like. Um, does, does that mean that it's more helpful to think of grief as being something that we will live with for, for the rest of our own lives yeah I mean again it's whatever works for you <laughs> but for me for me uh once I stopped fighting it and trying to find right where's the end of level boss how can I beat it what book do I need to read a bit like what Chloe was saying like how can I how can I fix this solve it and it's done and I'm the hero I did it and once I just thought it's just gonna be there forever isn't it it's just I'm always gonna be sad that my dad died like there's nothing I can do about that and I started reading about more theories like the dual process theory and this idea that the fried egg theory from Dr. Lois Tonkin, who's amazing, amazing writer about grief, that, you know, the grief is the yolk and the white is your life. And, you know, it, it, this is like a really massive fried egg, but your life goes around it um, or ball in the box theory as well. All these other theories that like the grief stays with you and it might change, it might evolve, it might, it's not going to be as painful, but your life grows around it and you, you carry on with this, this pain with you. And once I started just letting that be, the grief just, I can't describe it. Like, it just became so much, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, so much ex fucking easier. <laughs> you can bleep me out. You can definitely swear. Yeah, just like this feeling of like fighting grief or trying to fix it or solve it or make it end. It's like you're on a hamster wheel. You're never, ever going to get there. But once you just go, oh, I see, like life is about good things and bad things and you have to hold both of them and, and try and, work how to deal with them as best as best you can it got a lot easier and in the book I yeah I have chapters which are like you know interesting things that I've, I've learned about grief from talking to people but the other the waves is this idea that every now and again I will still get smacked in the face by a big old fucking grief wave and it gets less like the first year it's like every five minutes every one minute you're getting hit in the face and I'm 20 plus years along that line and I can go for years without really feeling it. But obviously at the moment my book is out and it's about my dead dad. Like I'm definitely, I can feel, I can feel a, a little old grief wave headed towards me and I'm, I've got better. This is the only benefit of long-term membership of the club. I've got better at going, oh, here it comes. I know mm. it won't last. 
I've just got to ride it out. And if I feel crap, I feel crap. Don't fight it. Eat the chocolate, watch the telly, be in a bad mood. It will pass. It will pass. And that's the only benefit of long-term membership is you don't, when you see it, you don't think this is it forever. Oh my God, Mm. here it comes. You're like, oh, hello again. (laughs) (laughs) We will come later to some tips for people to do with grief, but eat the chocolate, watch the telly is a very good start. That's just definitely how I've survived the past 20 years. (laughs) Eat the chocolate, watch the telly. (laughs) Um, Chloe, I wanted to come back to you because um, your book features illustrations by Anna Walker. And obviously that's, I found that a really interesting addition to the to the words. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about why it was important for you to have that as part of the book as well and, and what it sort of contributes. Uh, well, I guess this book in a way is, a, is an homage to children's literature. And um, I think one of the, you know, most thrilling things as a, as a child reading picture books is, is the illustrations. And I, and I guess that... Um, you know, why not just go straight into the, the cliches? I mean, a, a, a picture can sort of, you know, um, tell a thousand words. And I and I and um, you know, Anna, I, I've, I'm holding this up really to to carry out. And, and Michael, there's just like a storm on on one page and a wave. Um, and I guess that her images um, kind of pick up weather and and. Um, the the kind of strange journey um that can be really bleak sometimes um of of making your way through um this experience and and we found that the more abstract her images were um the the better that they worked and um there was a moment when I was writing this where I wanted to sort of drop down into kind of what I think of as deep story and um I guess the unfolding also that Michael spoke about is is in a way is poetry because children's um, children's literature can only there can be a sentence as you said of three words that are that mean so much and um, you know that that with an image can sort of be far more evocative than uh, you know a thousand a thousand words of, of dense text but I I mean speaking of strange reactions, Cariad. I, I was riding today with my kids in the car and we drove past a, a hearse and it was a kind of glass hearse with a um a white coffin covered in lilies. Wow. And it was quite a um somber moment. But I turned back and I saw my son giving a thumbs up to the hearse driver. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Good on your son. Yeah, why not? You're doing a good job. You know, it's a hard day. You've got a body in there. Good job. Like, that's amazing. I love that. I said to him, you know, I don't know if that was the reaction that they would have expected. I bet they loved it. and And he just straight off said, well, you know, it's a celebration of life. And I, I thought, wow, um, you know, you're, 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 you know, the kids say the darndest things. But, yeah, um, yeah. My, um, uh, you know, that is the conversation. How, when in the midst of grief, can you also start to think of, in terms of the dual processing, yeah. you know, how, lead, how can it teach you how to lead your best life? I think that's so nice. I think that driver probably has never had a thumbs up. He must have been so chuffed. Like train drivers get there every day, like, woo, the 
train's coming in. Funeral card, guys. They're not getting many thumbs up. He must have been like, wow, my first thumbs up. Thank you so much. I think that's lovely. My husband has lost both his parents and he was in the playground and there was a small child who was very confused that my husband was there with children. Like he was really like, who are, why is the daddy? Where's the mummy? was like really asking loads of questions. And then eventually he said to my husband, um, well, where are you, where are you, where's your mum? <laughs> and my husband said, oh, she's dead. Cause he just, again, didn't quite know what to say. And this little boy ran off, screamed around the whole play- playground. His mum's dead. His mum's dead. And um, my husband was like, it made him laugh because he was like, yeah, he is. She is, you know, like, it's like this skin that we worry so much about like, oh, that maybe that's not okay. But it's like when someone just is like, yeah, that, you know, have a good day. They're dead. Like just as Michael said, when the child just asked the question, it does make you realize, yeah. oh, what are we all fretting about actually mm-hmm. rather than just that is what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. The problem is not death. It's grief. Isn't yes, exactly. It, it, exactly. Uh, it's how we handle grief. I mean, yeah. it's, 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 it's anyway, it's like a, two sides of the same coin but yeah yeah that's fantastic um i was going to say chloe that there's a there's a moment in the book which is incredibly powerful where the words and the illustrations come together with your frustration i suppose that um through the exploration of grief you, you talk about i suppose what would be a more general grief for us as a species about what we're currently doing to our planet and and how that might mean death for us all frankly and And you you get very frustrated because you're like, the words aren't helping here. And in fact, the words disappear, the pictures take over. And then you say, I'm sorry, I'll calm down. I'll, you know, and you sort of pick up again. But it, yeah. it seemed to me that was an extraordinarily sort of honest depiction of, I suppose, of, of, of emotion, of frustration, and then finding the words to carry on. It, mm. was that, is that a bit like what writing can be like sometimes, that, it, that the words don't work and that you need to then start again and, and build up? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I think there is a, a question, you know, of what, what, what's this for? Who is this going to help? And I, I don't think there's any, any writer who's being honest who doesn't ask themselves that. And I think there's also, I mean, you know, there, it would seem strange sometimes I was reading my, my children's sort of stories about, you know, rabbits being tucked up under um, patchwork quilts. And I mean, in Australia, rabbits have completely screwed the topsoil of this whole continent in ways which it will take uh, centuries to ever repair. I mean, and so, you know, when you're reading about like kind of um, bears who are dentists and, and, you know, elephants and chickens are going off to the library together and, and, you know, in the mid, we're in the midst of a mass extinction. So, I mean, there's sort of, um, you know, there are questions, I guess, about, uh, loss and grief that when you're reading um kids books you 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 can feel that you're um uh you know it it uh it um is behooves is that the right word it's um you know it's a it's a kind of you you feel you need to uh borrow down excuse the pun and and answer some of those questions and i and i suppose that you know we have this obsession with saving um my my partner's life and we're extremely fortunate because he is in remission um but actually the same year my best friend's son my best my sorry my my son's best friend lost his father so we know how the story also goes but 
you know, so much, we put so much time and money into saving um, ourselves. And I suppose, um, you know, we don't often think very much about the life cycle of the planet. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> we'll save that for another podcast. Yeah, um, we, we've been talking a little bit about, I suppose, confronting grief and dealing with it and, and moving through it. And Michael, your book is called Getting Better. And there are many different ways in which you sort of bring up that theme. But obviously, most personally for you recently, that has been the, the impact that coronavirus had on you and your recovery from that I like many people was very upset when I saw that you were ill in the news and very relieved when I heard that you had you know uh, were making a recovery Um, but I wonder whether there are things that you have been through through that process that have really helped that recovery um, and that would be I suppose applicable to anybody who is maybe struggling to to do the everyday tasks because of uh, any kind of grief they might be going through? Yes. Um, I guess one of them, which also applies to uh, losing Eddie, um, is being curious about these things that change us. So in the case of Eddie, it was finding out about meningitis. In the case of me, it was finding out more about COVID. So um, I'm endlessly curious about that. And that has the advantage that you stop thinking that these things, that you're the only person this is happening to. Mm. That meningitis is just very, very ordinary. It just so happens to have a terrible effect on you as a person. But there's nothing extraordinary about it. It's just a bacterium. And bacteria do stuff, you know, and interact with bodies. So when you do that, it brings you down to earth. So that's one thing. I um, was being endlessly curious about the kind of medical aspects of things. And then physically speaking, um, because I couldn't stand up and I couldn't walk when I came out of intensive care, um, I had a quite interesting experience of three weeks in a rehabilitation hospital. And it really it came home to me when um, there was a bloke saying to me in, in the, uh, when we were sitting around eating, and he said, I think I'm going to bunk off this afternoon, meaning, you know, I'm not going to go to the gym. Hmm. And I remember thinking, what are you bunking off from? (laughs) And I thought, well, the only thing you're bunking off from is helping yourself get better. Now, that all sounds very prissy and like the the good kid in the corner of the class. The thing was, the the reason why I had that reaction was because he had the model that he was going to school and that these therapists, the the physiotherapists and occupational therapists were teachers. Mm. And you know that thing when you're at school and you think teachers are doing this stuff for their benefit? You sit there and you think when the teacher is going, je suis tu et il est, you're thinking they're doing this for their fun. They don't really care whether I learn this stuff. They're doing it because they're getting off on it. You know, you don't know, nous sommes vous êtes. What's the matter with you? You know, you think it's all there. So you go, yeah, I'm bunking off French. Great. Yeah, that will show them. Now, you, you know, you have to move on from that. It's kind of a big leap to realize that when you've got to learn how to put one foot in front of another, it's actually down to you entirely. And when the physiotherapist and the occupational therapist aren't in the room, you've got to carry on doing it yourself. So there's nothing to bunk off from. So that was a big breakthrough for me because I had been somebody who had thought in the schooly way for many years because I did used to bunk off from school. So that was quite a sort of interesting moment. And then the other thing, again, it sounds quite trivial, but I really do work this philosophy in my life, which is that as I go to sleep, I ask myself, was did I do anything today that I can be pleased about? 
Now, that sounds like, you know, did I climb Mount Everest or did I write, you know, we heard Tolstoy earlier, you know, did I write Tolstoy? You know, no, it's did I go to the supermarket and remember to buy eggs because I knew I had to buy eggs or did I come back and forgot eggs? If I forgot the eggs, then I sit there lying in bed, just going off to sleep thinking, you know, you twat, you forgot the (laughs) eggs. If I remembered the eggs, I go, yeah, well done. So literally every day, and I said this in the sad book and I said it in my book, is just congratulate yourself on doing something that was okay. And as I say, it really can be as trivial as you like, you know, did I leave the frying pan with the little bits of egg stuck to it or did I actually clean it off? I cleaned it off. Yeah, great. Well done, Rosen. And I do that. And it actually makes me feel really good. And I go off to, go off to sleep with a smile on my face. And I do it every day, I, literally every day. I love this. That's so lovely because definitely... it's basically like the, people now sell gratitude journals they make money and sell them to people being like, you need to write down things you're grateful for. Michael has basically invented the free gratitude journal. <laughs> Just lie there and be like, what did I do that's okay? You don't need a fancy book, guys. And it can be anything. I mean, like today's podcast, the fact that it's, it's worked, you know, and that it's switched on, it worked, and then, you know, it'll come to an end. And then I'll think, well, that's great. That might be the thing that'll float up. Or, you know, who knows? It just might be. I hope it th- is. Yeah, yeah or, I was going to say. As, it as the podcast, it's, it's only if it saves that it counts, Michael. So oh, that's, that's true. The, yeah. That's the anxiety well, the pressure, I have to go through. Pressure. There's some hummus yeah. to buy, so I've got to remember <laughs> to buy hummus. You're making me hungry, well, Michael. I want some yeah, fried egg sandwich and then... And, I, and of course, all this memory stuff is quite important in a sense because I actually regularly forget stuff. So that's why I can congratulate, can congratulate myself on remembering things. Very good. Karad, uh, you mentioned uh, chocolate and TV watching as as ways of uh, dealing with things and indeed starting a long-running podcast series where you talk to fellow griefsters. But are there any other things that you think have, have been really helpful and would be applicable to, to almost anybody in any circumstance? Um, yeah, it's hard. I mean, like I said, you know, I think what Michael said is, is brilliant to just be like, I, I used to say to people, like, if you got dressed, high five. I've got a little poem in the paperback version of... Uh, many different kinds of love and congratulating myself that I put my underpants on. So yeah, I think we've, <laughs> we've got a, like an overlap there. Yeah. yeah. I, d- I really think like if you got dressed, brilliant. If you made yourself a cup of tea, Oh, you are on fire. Like if you managed to leave the house and you spoke to someone, what? Woohoo! Like, I think that's the thing of just, as Michael said, like really lowering those expectations. Cause for me, eating chocolate, having cake, it's all sugar based and then and then allowing myself to sit still were really comforting things but that that isn't for you know everybody everyone has very different relationship with food and very different relationship with sitting still and it might be that you you know you you need to get out on a walk you need some fresh air like there's lots of very I think we all kind of know do you know what we all kind of know the good things that make us feel better it's just trying to allow the door in for some small things so rather than thinking like today I must go out on an hour's walk and get fresh air and do a complete shop, I guess as Michael said, it's like, did you get dressed? Start there. <laughs> and if you didn't, that's fine. But did you brush your teeth? You know, did you make yourself a cup of tea? Did you answer those needs as best you can? Especially in that first year when the the idea of taking care of yourself seems so utterly pointless. You really are hit with the pointlessness of life of like, well, what, what, why? Like, why? I'll just, I'll just be hungry. And I spoke about that in the book. I kind of stopped eating in a kind of almost dangerous way. And then I kind of caught it. But I definitely mm. thought, I mean, I, 
I thought I just don't see the point of giving myself any nutrition because I can't like people die so what's the point <laughs> you really yeah. hit some really difficult questions and I can't imagine having to you know deal with small children with those sorts of questions as well and I think when you do something nurturing to yourself very small remember to buy eggs remember to get dressed you are just on the scale of pointlessness putting a weight on it is worth it is worth taking care of yourself so if you can put mm. like a small rock each day on the it's worth taking care of myself and take it away from it's not worth it you can kind of get through that first year, especially a, a little bit easier. And, and Chloe, um, as uh, Karen mentioned, it's so difficult when you're not only looking after yourself, but having to think about, oh, you know, gosh, looking after yeah. your own kids as well. Um, obviously, you've had the the fantastic news of remission for Don, but has there been something along the process that that you felt really helped finally make it easier for you to for t- you to talk to the kids about what was going on? Um, well, I think, so I, I guess, um, again, I'm the kind of step, step before, um, you know, the, 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 the chocolate and the tea and, and getting dressed, but I guess that it's, um, to, to, to drop stories into kids' literary diet that actually, um, talks, talk openly about, about life and death, because I think kids are, are natural philosophers. They're really fascinated by, um, you know, life's biggest mystery. And there are some fantastic kids' works, um, you know, including a lot by Michael, um, which which sort of deal with this subject matter. And and I think that it's important to to raise it, raise this and to feel like it's not a taboo topic. And um for kids when when something does happen that it's part of their cosmology in some way. They remember you know, um, sad book or memory tree or um, um, the girl in the bottle or whatever the book might be, and and that that there are so many, um, and a, and and that maybe helps helps um, helps people kind of find some small way of putting this in context, and maybe then they everyone can have a thumbs up to the the hearse driver. <laughs> <laughs> some fantastic book recommendations there and i can wholeheartedly uh, of course endorse all three of yours so that's bedtime story by chloe hooper you are not alone by carol lloyd and getting better by michael rosen i can't thank all three of you enough uh, for joining me um from london and australia for this conversation it's been so fantastic um and yeah thank you have a have a lovely day thank and you. remember to give any hearse drivers a thumbs up if you see them. <laughs> mm, geez, Always. Yes. Thank you, Will. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>